So good morning to everybody. Welcome on this cold, rainy, unseasonable <laughs> Easter Sunday. And I'm Lyndall Johnson, one of the Sims Local Dharma Leaders, as I think probably a lot of you already know. And I'm going to be leading our meditation today and giving the Dharma talk. I think as many of you know who have been here earlier or who go to um, the other, you know, Monday or Thursday night at Sims, for April, May, and June, we're doing a series on the three characteristics, or Dukkha, Anicca, and Anatta. And last week, Jerry provided a really nice introduction to this topic for us with a little bit of a taste of each of the three characteristics. And this week and for the rest of this month, we'll be going more deeply into the characteristic of Dukkha. And when we were planning for this series, we had a hard time deciding really where to start because the three characteristics are so related and um, Jerry emphasized that in his talk last week. But we decided to start with dukkha because dukkha or suffering, you know, or this kind of sense of dissatisfaction with our lives is I think it's what brings so many people to this practice. They feel that and they're looking for some way to find an answer. And also because the Buddha began with the truth of dukkha in his, you know, really very important and, you know, initial teachings on the Four Noble Truths, maybe the most important teachings that he gave, really. So I think it's a good place to begin. And so here we are this week with Dukkha. And in a way, this has been a kind of, for me, a pretty easy talk to prepare because there's lots to be said about Dukkha. And there's lots of information out there, lots of talks, lots of teachings. So it's not difficult to find things to say. But in another way, it's been a really kind of a difficult talk because thinking about dukkha, working with dukkha has forced me to think more and more about my own experience of dukkha. And then hearing this news yesterday about um, Thaddeus' death, that also really brought home this truth. And so... Before I really begin, I want to acknowledge the difficulty of the subject of dukkha. You know, it's one of those things that it might be easy to talk about and easy to kind of understand on a certain level, but it's really not so easy to allow yourself to actually experience it. So with, with that, you know, kind of acknowledging the pain of this topic, so as Jerry mentioned last week, Duke is one of those poly words that doesn't have really that great of a translation in English. It's usually translated as suffering, and it does mean suffering. But it also encompasses really all the unsatisfactory and unpleasant experiences we might have in life. 
So just to give you a sense of all that it can include, here's a list of different adjectives in English that would be considered as dukkha. And this comes from an article by the teacher Jean Wall Glenn Wallace in an article in the Lions Roar magazine entitled, What is Dukkha? So here are his words. Faint unsettledness, irritation, impatience, annoyance, frustration, disappointment, dissatisfaction, aggravation, tension, stress, anxiety, vexation, pain, desperation, sorrow, sadness, suffering, misery, agony, anguish. Whoa, that's a lot. And we could all probably add a few more words to this list. So dukkha really includes just a whole gamut of unpleasant experience. So it seems like this big unwieldy thing, but as usual in his teachings, the Buddha put this whole big, wild, unwieldy gamish of experience into some kind of order so we can better understand it and think about it. So in explaining dukkha, he identified three main categories. And these aren't mutually exclusive. There might be some overlap, but I think they're kind of helpful in understanding dukkha. So the first of these categories is dukkha dukkha. And this dukkha is the dukkha of just plain old painful experience that's part of human life. And I suppose part of the lives of all beings really because certainly animals as well have their dukkha. And this pain is associated with birth, you know, giving birth and being born, with aging, with sickness, the pain associated with death, and the pain associated with discomfort in the body, being cold and hungry and thirsty, getting injured. And it also includes the emotional suffering that arises when things don't turn out the way we had hoped they would, or when we can't get what we want, or when we're separated from things and people we love, or, you know, on the other side of it, stuck with ones that we really don't like that much. And in the suttas, some of the examples of painful emotions that are mentioned are grief, sorrow, distress, despair. So in other words, this dukkha includes the painful and disappointing emotional and physical experiences that we all experience and all of us can relate to. And then the second category of dukkha is viparinama dukkha. In Pali, which is the dukkha associated with impermanence or change. So basically, this is the dukkha associated with the fact that pleasant experiences don't last. So it's the dukkha that expresses the fact that even when we get what we want, we still can't hold on to it forever. It will end or it will change or it will break down. You know, it's sort of like that beautiful new car that you're excited about and it looks so great until you get that first scratch on it. Or the lovely meal that you enjoy that's 
but that's overall too soon and maybe leaves you with indigestion at the end. And then there are the more serious things, of course, just as we've been reflecting on this morning. The loss of loved ones through sickness and death, relationships that end. And we shouldn't forget also that this Viparinama Dukkha applies not only to the people and things around us, but to us as well. So no matter how successful or beautiful or talented we are, in the end we will lose it all too, to aging, sickness and death. So this kind of Dukkha of change and impermanence. And then there is Sankara Dukkha. And this might be kind of the hardest one to recognize or maybe the most complicated one. And I've heard it defined in different ways. In um, an article I read on these three kinds of suffering that was written by the staff of the Lions Roar magazine, they define it as all-pervasive suffering and describe it like this. It's the general background of anxiety and insecurity that colors even our happiest moments. Deep down, we fear that life doesn't offer us solid ground and that our very existence is questionable. From a Buddhist point of view, these doubts are well-founded and exploring them offers us glimpses of wisdom. So maybe glimpses of wisdom, but not necessarily comfortable. And this background suffering, as I've heard it talked about, might also include the sort of oppressive nature of just being in this human body that always has to be looked after and cared for and is constantly being bombarded with sense information and endless activities that this sense information brings up in the mind. You know, this sort of on and on and on of existence, which sometimes seems like just too much. And it's also described as the dukkha associated with sankharas, the <clears throat> or mental formations. So this would be the suffering associated with our memories, our ideas about things, and our conditioned habit patterns and ideas and habit patterns that I think often we recognize they're, you know, based on maybe half-truths or delusions, not necessarily accurate or true. But even so, we can't seem to get away from them or fully let go of them. And I think we can all relate to that kind of suffering, too. In an article on uh, Dukkha by the Buddhist uh, author Tony Bernard, she says, Sankara dukkha arises when we take that step beyond simple aversion to an unpleasant physic to simple aversion to an unpleasant physical or mental experience and engage in stressful mental activity, such as concocting shoulds and shouldn'ts, judgments and anxiety-filled thoughts and questions. Sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> I think we can relate. Um, and just like Jerry mentioned last week, um, in addition to physical aspects of suffering, our imaginations can generate whole new layers of suffering. So this kind of duke is part of that. 
And I think one of the most painful layers of all might be the suffering we feel associated with our ideas of and our attachment to self. And, you know, well, as we talked about and acknowledged that last week, the concept of not self can be kind of difficult and confusing, but I think we all know about the suffering that we have associated with the feelings we have about ourselves, that we aren't good enough, that we can't live up to ideas, our ideas of what we should be, or the ways that we feel like we really are, our anger, our depression, our fear, or any of those painful emotions that we all have from time to time. You know, this feeling that this is really me. This painful, awful thing is really me. So in other words, it's all that suffering we feel when we get caught up in an idea that all of these things that give rise to the sense of self, the form, the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, the consciousness, all those five aggregate things that I think we've talked about sometime before during our discussions, all of that stuff really is mine, really is what I am, and really is me in a very permanent and unchanging way. So... Dukkha Dukkha, Viparinama Dukkha, Sankara Dukkha. This is a lot of Dukkha. And it's overwhelming, really, when you start to think about it. And so I think it's no wonder that this truth of Dukkha is something that's really hard to take in. Well, on one level, we really know, yeah, there's painful things in life to actually take it in not so easy we really don't want to believe it and as Judy Leaf says in her article on the middle way of stress we keep thinking that if we just fix this or fix that tweak here or there we can avoid it we can avoid dukkha in other words we think that if we were smarter prettier wealthier more powerful living somewhere else younger older male female, with different parents, you know, you name it, things would be different. But things are not different. And it's a pretty scary thing to come to terms with it because this truth is really telling us that we aren't really in control and that no matter how well we try to prepare, there still are going to be times when pain will come and we can't avoid it. And I know for myself that this past couple of weeks where this theme of dukkha has on, been on my mind, I've really been noticing how, you know, even on one level, I don't believe that if I do all the right things, I can avoid pain or avoid dukkha. I still find myself trying to do all these things, you know, like eating right, exercising, keeping the house clean, and worrying when I don't, you know, sort of that back. And then I notice that background anxiety and fear, too, that what seems okay and stable now could just fall apart. And, you know, how if I don't do all these things, it will fall apart. So, you know, I've been letting myself feel it a little bit more. And I've also noticed how much of the distracting activity I do, you know, like reading novels or watching TV, stuff like that, which are fine things in their place. 
But I also realize that part of the motivation is to block out that anxious background sankara dukkha. So you may see these things too as you begin to consider this. And so, you know, no, dukkha is not a fun thing to work with or to think about at all. And in a way, this truth of dukkha can seem like a really depressing message. But in another way, hearing it can also feel like a relief. You know, there's, on one level, there's a sense of someone finally telling it like it is. You know, not pretending that everything is fine when it really isn't fine. And I think what's even more of a relief when we hear this truth of dukkha, we may realize, oh, it's not just me. It's just, I don't feel this way or have these problems just because there's something wrong with me. Everyone has these feelings and has these problems. And I think that can be a really important realization, especially in our culture where there's so much of a sense that we ought to be able to be a perfect success. And if we aren't, it's all our fault. You know, I came across this quote in an article in the Atlantic magazine. It was from a review of this book by Alison Court called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. And the quote is, both success and failure were up to me alone. I was valuable only when I triumphed. And if I couldn't overcome, I'd be better off dead. And I mean, that's a really stark quote. And we might feel that this is pretty extreme to express things these ways, this way. And yet I think there's a certain level where we can all sort of identify with that feeling that somehow if we aren't successful, you know, and let's face it, in our culture, you pretty much have to be perfect to really be successful. We're worthless. And that's really painful. But the Buddhist teachings are saying, no, you know, this is not true. Pain and disappointment and loss and failure are part of life for all of us. And so that's an important message. But it's also important, too, that the teachings don't just end with saying, oh, there's this painful dukkha. From there, the Buddha goes on to talk about how we can work with this reality of dukkha. So we don't have to endure so much suffering and cause more suffering for ourselves and others. And Lauren is going to be covering that in more detail next week. So I'm not going to say too much this week. But I will mention a couple of things. And the first one is that when we think about dukkha, you know, we can think about these three categories, but we can also think about it in terms of the Buddhist teachings on the two arrows, which Jerry mentioned last week. So there's this dukkha that's the pain of the difficult situation itself, you know, the first arrow, the pain of an injury, the loss of a loved one, maybe even something as, you know, trivial as, having a draft in the room that makes you feel cold. So, you know, this initial painful event. And then there's often a second pain that comes on the heels of this, the second arrow, which is the mental pain associated with all of our resistance to whatever is going on. You know, our reaction to the first unpleasant event. Anger, 
blame, denial, all those kind of unpleasant emotions, and sometimes actions that are arise out of our refusal to, you know, acknowledge the first painful event or maybe deal with it in a way that's actually helpful. So often instead of taking some kind of wise action, we get so stuck up in our insistence that it shouldn't be happening that we're just lost in our sankara dukkha, all these painful mental formations. And if we aren't careful, we might go from the mental formations to actions, saying cruel things, striking out at others, looking for revenge, all of those kind of things. And then if we actually do those actions, then yet another cycle of dukkha arises because of them. So what the Buddha teaches is that we really can't avoid that first arrow. And painful experiences of loss and change and instability are part of our life. But through mindfulness and wisdom and through really investigating and coming to know our suffering, we can learn to work with our, the reality of dukkha more skillfully. So maybe we can help to minimize some of that dukkha associated with the second arrow. So the first noble truth is to be investigated so we understand this dukkha. Well, the Buddha talks about suffering and the end of suffering. We also have to know and understand suffering before we can come to that end. And I think maybe that's part of what makes this practice so hard. You know, we start out thinking we'll just, you know, learn some simple techniques like paying attention to the breath and we'll be able to relax, we'll be stress-free. And then what do we actually encounter in our meditation? Restlessness, impatience, aversion, doubt, body pain, boredom, self-judgment, unhappy memories, craving for things to be different, attachment to that one moment of peace we actually thought we experienced. You know, in other words, in short, we experienced dukkha, 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 dukkha. So we think the practice isn't working and we're doing it wrong, but actually it's working just fine. And we're right in the middle of investigating dukkha. And so that's what Vipassana practice does. It uncovers that dukkha so we can recognize that it exists and we can understand it. And so it really, as we practice, it really forces us to to question a lot of those myths that we tend to believe about dukkha. You know, that if we can just fix this or that... We can avoid it. If we can just make ourselves smarter or more powerful or more successful, we won't have to experience it. And eventually we might even have to question the assumptions we might have when we begin to practice. That if we were just kinder, more virtuous, a more skillful meditator, we wouldn't have to experience dukkha. And I'm not saying that those things aren't good. And, of course, if we have a strong meditation practice, if we behave in kind and ethical ways, that's really important. And they definitely help. There's no question about that. To minimize dukkha, to contribute to our happiness and our well-being, and to help us to avoid suffering and causing suffering. But at the same time, I think we also begin to understand that at the end of it, there's really something about this ending of dukkha that 
isn't about me, isn't about being a perfect person, and it goes beyond me being or doing anything. So we begin to see here this kind of relationship between dukkha and anatta. Just as we can see a relationship between dukkha and impermanence or anicca. But that's a talk for later and we can just kind of bring up a little bit of <laughs> hint, you know, that there's more to us than anything we do as individuals. So for now, it, a good focus is just to investigate dukkha, be willing to investigate it, to let ourselves see it, to let ourselves feel it more clearly, which is not an easy thing. And to notice these different types of dukkha, to see both our pain and our reactivity to it, those first and second arrows. So we investigate dukkha, we recognize it, we can begin to understand the dukkha we can't avoid and the dukkha that maybe we can do something about. And as we do this, we can begin to actually see for ourselves what the Buddha taught. We can see dukkha, and even if it's only in small ways, we can begin to see an end of dukkha. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening so patiently. Nice to have you here. And now we have some time for some small group discussion. So if you aren't able to stay, and I know many people may have busy days today, um, you can say goodbye for now. And I'm really happy you were able to join us for the time that you could join us. And... Then for everybody that can stay for our discussion today, I'd invite you to share something about your own experience of this truth of dukkha. In what ways does it show up for you in your life? And in what ways does it show up for you in your practice? And maybe how have you worked with it in your practice? Um, you know, what's your relationship with this truth? And if it's confusion or delusion, that's fine too. So whatever you would like to share. I'll break you into groups of four and we can have, oh, maybe 15 minutes or so for our discussion. And then we'll come back together um, for our whole group sharing and close. We, we need another hour. Another hour, Lyndall. Yes. Oh, you could have gone for another hour? Oh, boy. At least. At least. At least another hour. Well, I, I, there's going to be a lot to talk about in the next <laughs> weeks, I guess, then. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that. It was very good. It was very good. I had two wonderful partners. Mm. Well, in that case, we might have lots of sharing that people would like to, uh, you know, bring up about what they talked about. So we have some time to do that before, um, you know, we break for the day.
I guess, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I think Suze, you probably summarize it better than me because I'm trying to like, if I were to describe, uh, I, I kind of lack the words. Um, so I would defer to my, to Sheila and Suze to maybe come up with a little summary because I think it was a very good discussion. First of all, dukkha is like so important and I have noticed in my practice an inclination to move further along in the Four Noble Truths and focus on the Eightfold Path because it's easier than really staying with the truth of what life is like and what we do with it when it appears and the how much how personally we take it all and make it into me and mine and um that's all i would say is like yay that we're talking about this sheila did you want to add anything to that Oh, boy, I think you summarized it very, very nicely of the importance of dukkha. And um, I, I was saying to the group, or my, my little group, that I just came back from a month long at Spirit Rock, mm. and which was full of dukkha. But it was a wake-up call. Because, you know, I realized with all the practice that I have done, that I have not used my practice to work with dukkha. And I have, you know, just fallen into this place of ruminating and just the whole mental, emotional scape full of dukkha. I didn't know you guys were talking about this today. <laughs> so it is an incredible gift. And I also want, want to say I, I'm going to do Philip Moffat, you know, the, um, he's doing his, um, what dancing with life, which is on the four noble truths. Dukkha, 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 you know, especially the first noble truth. And it's coming up soon. It's online. So I have signed up for that. And believe it or not, I've already done that course. But I'm also learning that this path is a very, it's a long path. It's its a long, slow path. and But it's worth it. So that's all. So thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are so right about the importance of dukkha. And I I feel like we never get to the end of investigating because, you know, you see one layer and then there's another layer and another layer. And every time it comes up, there's this thing kind of feeling for me of, oh, hmm, what is it that I'm not seeing? Where am I deluded? What's going on? You know, it's like a wake-up call that there's something going on here that I need to look at. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a huge part of the practice. We were we were talking about um, how long it takes for the mind to let go of anything. And how I always had this feeling that if I could just see my pattern, you know, my reactions and every, and how it works, then bingo, I'd be free of that one, right? And on to the next one, but it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I can see it very clearly and it just keeps happening, uh, especially if it's a really strongly conditioned reaction. Um, and I guess it was sort of, reassuring to find out that everybody else is having that same experience. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you, Judith. I know I certainly have that experience. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things, I think. Although I do feel like when I actually see it, it may not last as long. Yeah, that's that. I still do it, but I may not be stuck in it as long. (laughs) So there is that, you know, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time for the mind to let go and you can't force it. No. And I think it takes a long time for the mind to actually see some of these patterns as unskillful or unhelpful patterns because we're so busy justifying our behavior or finding a reason or blaming somebody else or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a long, it's a, it's a long process. I think a really important thing for me is to know that this dukkha is here um, for the rest of my life. I don't know what happens after I die. Um, And to lighten up. To love myself. To have compassion for myself and everybody else who's suffering. That it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. You know, to to have com- love and compassion for myself because being a human sucks. But I don't have anything else to compare it to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it's like accepting, you know, accepting, not fighting, and then being okay with the fact that I do fight and all mm-hmm. these layers of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Very well said. And that makes me think too about how it's so important to investigate dukkha, but it's also so important to notice the beautiful and to have that love and compassion, you know, to sort of see the painful things we do or go through and find ways of coping with them that are beautiful. So thank you. You know, you really said it well. It also keeps me on the path. Started Mm -hmm. me on the path and keeps me on the path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we can't stay on the path without meta and compassion. We really, really can't. It's just, it's just too hard, you know. You have to have that. You had to have that and meta for oneself. And Sangha. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so true, Rosie, so true. <laughs> I mean, just having a discussion where we recognize that everybody is having some of the same kinds of struggles. That alone is a huge help. Rita has her um, hand up. Oh, go ahead, ahead, please. I was just going to say, I live with a 17-year-old girl, my daughter, and um, I mentioned this in our small group, and and it's hard for me. If I don't, I think it's the actual, the dukkha or the awareness of it that gets me to the meta somehow that I, she, she does things that I used to take personally, but 
if I, but by not taking them personally, I'm able to feel more compassion for her. So, um, it, the, that's what keeps me there. I've noticed a palpable, a measurable difference in, uh, her <laughs> erratic behaviors occasionally that are poignant, you know, they're punctuated by lovely, beautiful things she does too. And just like finding an evenness amongst all of it to not be reactive has made a huge difference for my relationship with her. Mm, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, there's like two, two big truths I heard you saying about not taking it personally, which is a monumental thing. And then how seeing the dukkha really is what often brings up compa- our, our compassion and meta. You know, we see, our, feel our own suffering and others' suffering, and that really brings it up. So thank you. Mm, I guess probably it's time for me to go ahead with our announcements, but thanks everybody for all of the sharing that you've done. It sounds like this is a really rich topic. So I think the rest of the month we'll have a lot to talk about. (laughs) And then let's just sit for a few moments as we close, appreciating our coming together being able to share with each other and sharing the merit of our practice with those near to us and those far. Maybe on in particular today with Twery and her family. May all beings, whoever they are and wherever they are, share in the merit of our practice May their hearts be at ease and they, may they find refuge in kindness and connection. Thank you, everybody.